Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the NatSec Nightcap, uh, at the National Security Institute's monthly conversation with an issue leader. Today, we've got Josh Rogan, who's a journalist with the Washington Post, a political analyst at CNN. Josh has covered foreign policy and national security for a variety of publications, Bloomberg View, Newsweek, Daily Beast, Foreign Policy Magazine, CQ, FCW, and Japan's Asai Shimbun. He was a 2011 finalist for the Livingston Award for Young Journalists and also received the Interaction Award for Excellence in International Reporting. Most importantly, though, for us today, Josh is the author of a new book, Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, Xi, and the Battle for the 21st Century. Josh, thanks for being here with us today. You know, thanks so much for hosting this. This is really great. You know, I, I understand that the Nightcap series usually goes with some sort of endorsement of an alcohol. So for those of those of you who are drinking out there, I would like to officially endorse in the hopes that someone at this company will notice it. Uh, Eagle Rare, which is a part of the Buffalo Trace Ooh. brand. And uh, hopefully if the Eagle Rare people are watching, send me some. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I have been releasing this book under quarantine, so it's it's been uh, challenging to communicate and, and to interact with people. But I really appreciate these opportunities to talk to people like you about uh, these important issues. So thank you so much for everybody for tuning in. Absolutely. And Josh, I love that you're drinking Eagle Rare. Um, I'm more of an Angel's Envy guy myself, uh, but, uh, but but I do but I do respect the Eagle Rare. Uh, it's, it's a good it's a good bourbon. So. Um, all right. So, folks, we're going to just jump right in. Um, there will be time, by the way, for you all to ask questions along the way. Uh, we've got a Q&A function here in this uh, in this setting, so you can feel free to put your questions in there. And about 35, 40 minutes in, we'll go to your questions and we'll uh, we'll have a chance to talk to Josh about the things that you all want to talk about. But, you know, Josh, I want to talk about your new book, right? Uh, again, Great. Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, G, The Battle of the 21st Century. You can get on Amazon. I downloaded it while in Alaska on my Kindle, actually on my iPad, but with the Kindle app. So it's gettable in any sort of way. Um, but I want to talk about sort of one of the big issues you talk about in your book, right? It's this major shift in U.S.-China relations that took place just in the last five years. Talk to us about what's changed in U.S.-China relations and, and, and why it's happening. Right. So, you know, Jamil, you and I have known each other for how long? What, 15 years now? It's been a while, right? I'm not that old, so it can't be. It can't have been 15 years. I mean, I would have been okay. 12 at the time. That's let's true. say so, 10 I mean, years. Let's say 10 years then. You know, and anyway, for all the time that you and I and a lot, all the people our age, let's, let's roughly middle-aged people have been in Washington, you know, we've been caught in the horns of this dilemma, which is, is this big bet on uh, China, our basic China strategy? And I'm boiling it down a bit to be sure, but the idea that engagement and cooperation focused strategy would uh, be the best path, would be the best way right? to convince China the Chinese leadership to liberalize economically and that would then yeah. eventually lead them to liberalize politically and that would then solve all of our problems and we could avoid the Cold War and avoid the Thucydides trap and all that stuff that the doesn't sort of, seem to have worked. Well, no. that's the thing. Well, so I what I noticed in the my 17 yeah. years of covering Washington, starting in the Japanese newspaper up till now, at the Washington Post, is that over that course of time, it became more and more obvious that that bet just wasn't working out, not because Washington didn't believe in it, not because we didn't try hard enough, not because we didn't you know, do our best to offer the Chinese leadership a chance to participate in our system. And I'm not saying that mistakes weren't made, but overall, it seems that it was hubristic to think that the Chinese uh, government and that China would uh, would develop in a way that was similar to us, you know, and right, right. It, it, as it turns out that China is going to develop in a way that's determined by the Chinese people one way 
yeah. or the other. And then, you know, when it, when Xi Jinping came to power in 2013, there was a lot of optimism that this might be the last chance for this engagement cooperation focused strategy to pay dividends. And for those couple of years at the end of the Obama administration, there were there was a fierce debate inside the government, as you know, about whether yeah. or not to keep going or whether or not to basically change course. And, you know, by the end of the Obama administration, it seemed pretty clear for a number of obvious reasons that Xi Jinping had decided to take his country in a different direction, that they weren't going to liberalize. In fact, they were right. going to become more authoritarian and more totalitarian and more externally aggressive and more internally impressive and more interested in rather than joining the whatever you want to call it liberal world order that we've constructed over the last 80 years, but to change it to instead of us shaping them, yeah. that they were going to shape us and that, right. that to create a global world order based on the China dream that makes it a world safe for autocracy and repression. And, uh, you know, and that is, is essentially an agenda that's adverse to us, that's adverse to our interests. Yeah. And, well, right. you know, at when the presidential election happened in 2016, and this is how the book opens, uh, it seemed as if that policy was going to continue and largely because it seemed that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election right. and she didn't win. And then Trump won the election and everything was totally disrupted in every way. And the, the U.S.-China relationship was no uh, right. exception to that. And then so I as soon as I saw that, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a crazy story. And what I did over the course of the four years of the Trump administration was focus more on China and the U.S.-China relationship than any other issue there yeah. was out there, despite the fact that, you know, Russia seemed to be a big story, et cetera. And what a I found bit, was, a little bit. I knew it was going to be crazy, but I didn't know it was going to be this crazy. Okay? Right. And immediately it was super factional. It was super contentious. You know, you had yeah. President Trump, who had a very firm idea of China and the U.S. Within China the administration. Within the administration. Within the administration. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we can get into the factions. I'm happy to talk about the factions. Yeah. But the point is, it was a, a crazy fight from the beginning and it just got crazier yeah. as time went on. And the factions fought each other and they fought for the president's favor. And he changed his mind about the tactics, but kept his eye on basically on a, 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 the strategy that he's had for China his whole life, which is to confront China economically and ignore the rest of the stuff. OK. Yeah. And the that grand uh, uh, shift in U.S. policy happened in the most dysfunctional administration that anyone's ever seen. And right. that means that's why the book is called Chaos Under Heaven. Now, that's the first part of the book. The second part of the book, which is woven through the two narratives, is what yeah. you just talked about, which is the broad awakening to the rising challenge of a rising China in various yeah. sectors of American society. We're talking about academia, Hollywood, yes. Wall Street, yes. especially Wall Street, Silicon Valley, uh, in our politics, in our schools, in our sports, everywhere. And then this Amazing. this awakening was what i call it with the, Ch- the china hands don't like when i say that because they're like oh what are you talking about we've been awakened to the threat of the ccp for 50 years well i'm point- i'm not talking about the china hand community i'm talking about the rest of the country you know and all yeah. these american institutions that were seeing increased chinese government and chinese communist party influence in their institutions and having fierce debates about it what to do about right. it but they weren't talking to each other it was all siloed and all- so after yeah. i had done 150 or so articles about this. I went back and did another 400 or so interviews with people from all aspects and all institutions in U.S. society to get at what we're dealing with and how it's all connected. That was the mission of the book is to explain this for people, because it's clear that what happens in Beijing doesn't stay in Beijing and that the rise of China, complex and complicated as it is, affects us in our lives. And that was before the pandemic hit. And then we can. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean this is this is this is a great point. So I do want to talk about sort of the, the you know the uh, the sort of dynamics of the Trump administration, right? So you mentioned yeah. that there are these factions, everyone's fighting for the president's attention. By the way, this was not just true on China; this was true on everything. You of know, course, you sort of encourage this survivor mentality within the White right. House. And what's funny about this whole thing is everyone thought they were either winning or losing with the president. <laughs> you thought they could get him. What's amazing is actually, as it turns out, I think you're exactly right. What you hit on in your book, which is 
at the end of the day, Donald Trump just did what Donald Trump wanted to do the whole time. Right, right. He got pulled in different directions and it seesawed back and forth. But at the end of the day, he had, you know, his North Star might have been a North Star that none of us make things make sense. And maybe on this one, he was actually right. But, you know, he did ultimately follow it, even though he got pulled in different directions. So talk to us about what was going on. I mean, you get into some of the details here. We talk about, you have yeah, amazing you really- sourcing. I mean, it's really astounding to these stories you've got. But give us, a, give us a sense of what were the factions? What did it look like? Right. Who was winning? Who was losing? And how did this thing all play out? Right. Well, you know, I was very lucky to have a lot of access, which is, was unusual for the mainstream media. Uh, reporters at a time when the relationship between the Trump administration and the press was very strained, frankly. Right. Uh, but, you know, I traveled around the world three times with Mike Pence to Asia three times, with Mark Esper. I traveled with Robert O'Brien. Uh, you know, I, I did extensive reporting, uh, you know, in countries all over Asia when uh, these diplomatic conferences. I tried to collect as much as information as I, as I could to be an honest broker right. because I knew this was an important story that needed to be told. That's not to say I'm perfect, but I did the best that I could to get all the pieces. Okay. And basically right. what you had was a, tr- a Donald Trump who for 30 years had written books or had published books that were, had his name on them, which argued that the U S was being screwed over by China economically and on trade. And that, that was the most important thing he wanted to do as president. And of course he ran on that when he saw that the poll numbers in 2016 were, were, were tilting towards that anyway. Right. It, fit, it fit into the sort of Bannon Navarro nationalist populist message which was sort of onshoring jobs mm-hmm. and you know getting back at those guys who were screwing over the usa right. right and it worked you know that was one reason part of the reason why he got elected in the first place uh you know but the problem was that as soon as he got into office the what i call the super hawks that's bannon and navarro and and spalding and others who were really like gung-ho about like bringing down the ccp and fighting the ccp and all this uh they got sidetracked and they got marginalized by uh you know jared kushner and uh, Gary Cohn and uh, right. Wilbur Ross and Steve Mnuchin. And these were, you know, Wall Street and Washington guys and Rance Priebus and Rob Porter. And right. I the call swap. These, right. Or, you know, in one sense, the Wall Street click, which is like this Mnuchin Cohn guys right. and Larry Kudlow later. And then in the other sense, the bureau, like right, the Washington bureaucrats. Right. And they took mm-hmm. over the policy for a long time. But then eventually, the, the, you know, they failed to produce the trade deal that Trump wanted. And now the national security people were back in charge. And that's when yeah. you had the tariffs. But, what, you know, one of the secret stories that the book tells is how the tariffs were really designed by another group called the Hardliners. This was led by people like Matt Pottinger and Matt Turpin right. and others uh, who steered the tariffs not towards the outcome that Trump fought. Right. He wanted right. a deal. But the tariffs were constructed to throw sand into the Chinese technological advancement, yes. to slow their economy, to bait them into the middle income trap. Right. Which didn't really work. But the point is that. The the bet that the hardliners like Pottinger made was that there was never going to be a trade deal where they were going to change their industrial policy because Donald Trump said so. So we might right. as well construct the tariffs to increase uh, to inflict increasing pain on the Chinese government for uh, its economic uh, aggression and ba- other bad behaviors. Right. And people right. didn't realize that at the time because people were like, oh, what's going on with the trade war and this and that. And then, you know, that, of course, there was a, another group called but- the X. Yeah, yeah. Well, but let me ask you this, Josh. So, but, but Navarro had to have seen that, right? He had to see the, the sort of his attempt to grab Trump's attention and bring him sort of to this sort of what I would call it, sort of the trade unionist view, which is where, where Trump was at, right? Right. Was failing because Pottinger was actually getting, had his hand on the wheel, right? And was really driving this in the direction of sort of the, the hawkish, you know, it, call it, whatever it, you want. Yeah. It wasn't that Pottinger was driving the wheel, it was that Navarro who agreed with Trump the most on trade, yeah, never right. had never had any the power that he needed to advance his agenda. And once the trade talks were in the hands of Mnuchin and Ross, and then later uh, uh, Lighthizer and Kushner, 
they were steered in a totally different direction. And all the people, the Padre people tried to do is they tried to work inside the system so that in the end, the tariffs, if they stayed, would 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 be an ongoing pressure on the Chinese economy, even right. after Trump, which is exactly what happened, by the way. Exactly. They were uh, right. But the, the, you just have to think back to that time in like Mar-a-Lago 2017 when they're sitting around eating chocolate cake, you know, yeah. and there's a story about this in the book where if the Chinese had just given Ross and Mnuchin the trade deal that they wanted, some sort of indication that they were planning to or were willing to make some changes in their overall economic and industrial approach, uh, that might have staved off the, what came later, which was a broad change in U.S. strategic policy toward China, towards a more competition and more confrontation focused approach. Uh, but they didn't. They didn't give them anything. And eventually Trump then switched back and got very angry at Xi Jinping and then right. raised the pressure. And that's when we have the tech war on Huawei and all that stuff. And then uh, then they made a deal. <laughs> and then there was a detente. And the detente happened on January 15th, 2020, which was when it one, didn't day, matter. Right, one, yeah. one day before the coronavirus pandemic started. Yeah. And that yeah. is uh, just what we've just said there. It's just a crazy, crazy thing. And, you know, when you, th- you think of a guy like Navarro, who probably was more of a mind meld with Trump than any other person, but he was yeah. always marginalized. You kind of you kind of get what's going on. Like Trump liked to pit people against each other. Uh, yeah, I but, love that. you know, it didn't always make a lot of sense. So that's why. It right. Work. So he almost liked the, the cat fight more than the actual outcome. Right. It wasn't that it was that, you know, it was that he wanted people to compete to fulfill his vision. It's not that he didn't know what he wanted. He just wanted right. to, you know, and the problem was that, you know, a, you also had this other group that we didn't talk about yet, which is called the Axis of Adults. These are the Mattises, okay. the H.R. McMasters, and the John Kellys. These are the sacred cows of the D.C. establishment foreign policy right. blob who thought right. that their job was to keep the crazy president from driving the car off the road. Right. They're the ones stealing shit off people's desks and like, you know, trying to basically tr- stop Trump from doing the worst things. But it, as we learned, you know, trying to trick Trump into doing things would always eventually end in you getting fired or purged or right. quitting in disgust. But when the next team got in, which was the Pompeo uh, you know, Bolton team, they switched their tactic to trying to persuade Trump, which was somewhat yeah. more effective, but also didn't always work. And, you know, when it when when then when when it finally got to the coronavirus pandemic, it was really the national security people on one side and the mm-hmm. political people on the other side. And, you know, the political people were saying, like, we can't get into a Cold War with China because, yeah. you know, we have an election coming up and we need the economy to really hum. And there was Pottinger and these guys saying, oh, wait a minute, the coronavirus is a real thing. And uh, this is about to change the world. And of course, they were right. The political people were wrong. But so, Josh, uh, so talk to us about how the coronavirus. So I I know it's on the book, right? And I know I know we're primarily talking about the book. But but, so so talk to me. It's in the book. Oh, so, okay. So then, see, this is where I didn't get to the end of the book, right? You didn't read to the end. So I didn't read to the end. I will admit it. I will admit it. I got the Kindle version. All right. That's all right. Still there for you. How did the coronavirus pandemic change the dynamic so you know one of the most important ways that the coronavirus pandemic changed the dynamic in u.s china relations was that it you know it changed the relationship between donald trump and president general secretary xi jinping you know like any ceo donald trump believed that he had to deal with china on a ceo to ceo basis and he cultivated this relationship with xi jinping very carefully dozens of letters and phone calls that were never reported on that they never that they put in that super secret part of the you know, NSC file, you know what I mean? After they figured out all the other stuff was leaking. Right. And, right. you know, Trump believed in this and Trump, Xi Jinping knew this and he called on this relationship and for favors and Trump granted those favors liberally. And this had uh, uh, devastating effects on our policy in various points of the story, including when we were trying to go after ZTE and uh, Trump undid it, including when Trump told Xi that right. concentration camps were a great idea. And uh, so, so this was a 
a very complicating uh, dynamic. But what happened during the coronavirus pandemic, crazily enough, was that in the beginning, in two phone calls of February 6th and March 26th, as reported exclusively in Chaos Under Heaven, President Xi told President Trump that the coronavirus pandemic was under control, that it would go away in warm weather, that herbal medicine could be used to treat it, and several other lies. And these lies from the Chinese president to the U.S. president factored into the garble in Trump's head and contributed to the garble that came out of his mouth and that created crazy, uh, horrible impacts in our policy and in our response to the coronavirus, which exacerbated the suffering of hundreds of millions of Americans. Now, that is a, 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 an example, I think, where Trump got fooled by Xi Jinping. But here's the back end of it, which is even crazier, is that once the, it was clear that the pandemic was going to cost Trump the presidency, or at least he thought it might, and it ended up, I think it did in the end, he turned on his good friend Xi Jinping, and he, he released his national security officials like Pompeo and O'Brien and Ponger and William Barr and Christopher Wray and others to, to take off the shelf every tough-on-China measure they had been building up for the last four years and just unleash it. And that's when we yeah. saw a genocide designation, uh, bans on WeChat and TikTok, all of which played out in the most crazy way under the most uh, unusual circumstances in the middle of a pandemic and a presidential election. Yeah. And that's why when the Biden people took over, they were handed this big plate of stuff and they didn't know what to make of it. They weren't there. They yeah. hadn't read my book. My book wasn't out. They hadn't read it yet. I hope they right. read it because they'll figure out what they just got handed. But the, the bottom line is that they now they have to sort through it all. And I think they're making a, a fair effort to do that, but they're taking yeah. their time, you know. And so yeah. the first day it's like, oh, well, genocide designation, was that done well? Should we keep that? Should we like, OK, well, the politics are clear. We should keep that. Then they're looking at right. the Huawei thing and the Confucius Institute. So one by one, they have to go back and the origin of the coronavirus and the lab accident theory. Yeah, the I was, people, yeah. Yeah. I'll so, talk about that part. I'll talk about that part. Right sure. Now. Sure. Keep whatever going. you want. So, 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 Josh. So, um, so I do want to talk about the Confucius Institutes and the and and all that stuff, but I want to talk about the coronavirus and, and sort of the 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 lab in Wuhan. There's been a lot of talk about that. You've got some reporting on it. Um, talk to us about what you found when it comes to the lab um, and what your assessment of the situation is. The Biden administration is still trying sure. to figure that out. Sure. Um, what's your what's your what's your what's your sense of it? What do you, what do you, what do you, what does your book yeah. say about it? And and where do you end up on this whole thing? Yeah, no, to, to be clear, we don't know how the coronavirus outbreak started. I don't know. You don't know. You right. know, Jake Sullivan doesn't know. Matt Pottinger doesn't right. know. OK, so we have to just be honest about that. But what I'm yep. trying to offer as my part of the conversation is the fact that as this was playing out inside the U.S. government, of course, I was already writing the book. I had a ton of reporting on what was going on inside the government about the origin investigation at the time, right. which was misreported in the press for a number a variety of messed up reasons okay right and so i offer this information as a simple uh uh addition to the conversation and that's not to say that i believe it came from the lab or that i believe it came from a natural spillover my argument hasn't always been we have to investigate both because we can't rule out either now what i add in the book is the fact that from jump from the beginning there were a lot of people inside the u.s government who were saying we got to take a look at this lab and the obviously, issue, I mean, it seems obvious, right? I mean, because of what, yeah, Sanjay Gupta said, it's Occam's razor. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and because they were doing back coronavirus research and, uh, you know, the outbreak happened near the, the infection studies, et cetera, not yet. et cetera. And because there was a cover up and they took the database offline and they jailed the journalists and hid the science and censored the scientists. And, you know, all of these reasons that, you know, like I, I can't imagine more reasons that you would have to look at this particular set of labs, the Wuhan Institute right. of Virology and the Wuhan CDC and some others. 
And, you know, but in the press, it became a super politicized issue because Trump and Pompeo endorsed it. And so that made everybody else who was against Trump and Pompeo against it, which is kind of a ridiculous thing to be because it's not a political question. It's a scientific. It's really a forensic question. And but anyway, for a lot of those reasons, which I was intimately aware of, the issue became hyper politicized. One of those reasons was because Donald Trump over politicized it and merged the the coronavirus story with some racist terms that I won't repeat. And, you know, that contributed to anti-Asian hate and violence in our country, I believe. And I think that's a terrible blight on our society and and it's inexcusable. At the same time, none of that has anything to do with the lab in Wuhan. Right. Right. And so separating those two things, the the idea that the coronavirus may have originated from a a mistake at a lab in Wuhan that was studying this exact stuff and the idea that the coronavirus uh, issue has become super politicized in Washington is almost impossible. Even today, you can't do it. You saw that hearing with Rand Paul and Anthony Fauci. It's just like you can't even talk about this stuff with everybody right. getting into their corners and getting on their teams. And all I've tried to do is add some reporting to say, listen, from the beginning, there was plenty of circumstantial evidence that the lab accident theory needed to be investigated. For right. a lot of understandable reasons, the media went with another narrative. One of those reasons is that the scientists who were the best friends of the lab said it was impossible and it was a conspiracy theory because they were covering their butts. Okay? And the, another reason is that uh, people were against Trump and Pompeo, so they were against the lab accident theory. But that doesn't matter anymore because Trump's not president and Pompeo's not president. Right. So right. now that in this sort of like, you know, as we're opening up and people are, are mm-hmm. returning to some normal life, people are taking another look at this question. And, you know, it's an important question because, uh, you know, if we don't know how the the pandemic started we can't know how to prevent the next one in any right. accident in any disaster whether it's a plane crash or a nuclear meltdown you find out the most obvious thing to do is to find out how it happens right. so you can pre- right. reform policy to prevent the next one that's not happening uh, there are a few people right. in congress there are a few people in the media but most people don't care most people are not looking into it yeah. and are wedded to this idea that they know how it happened one way or the other and all i'm yeah. saying is that we need to investigate both theories and i think yeah. my reporting is and this is maybe a little bit new for your audience so the Biden administration is looking at that right now and that they're not invested in one theory or the other because they weren't there they didn't they don't care which yeah. they, uh, they don't have an allegiance to the natural spillover theory uh but you know it at, even as this new discussion of the origins continues it keeps yeah. getting politicized because fauci is a very divisive figure and because you know uh, a lot of people are prioritizing politics over our national security and our yeah. public health and that's a tragedy but we still need to get to the bottom of it yeah so before we leave this topic and i do want to talk about uh, about the sort of influence and in institutions alike and, and the nba and all that stuff sure. uh, by the way folks if, if you have questions put them in the in the chat uh, we'll get to it in about 20 minutes or so uh, but but uh, but on this topic you know a lot of people have said you know it's a he said it's a forensic investigation right it's too late whatever evidence there was whatever it you could find it's gone the people the, the scientists aren't yeah. aren't available the the, the this is really evidence important. is gone yeah. is that is that is that correct no can there be if no. you had a legitimate who no. investigation and, and by the way can the who do no. this effectively no okay so no. how, so how do you a, get it done okay yeah tell us so let, these are two very good questions I'll, I'll i'll tell you i'll answer the second one first no we can't trust the who to do it for a number of several obvious reasons they just did a year-long investigation where they appointed the best friends of the lab to investigate right. the lab right. and the best friends of the lab went to the lab for three hours looked their best friends in the eyes and said did you do it they said no sorry to bother you we'll get out of your way and now it's very unlikely and you better shut up and not talk about this and this needs no more investigation now that whitewash was so blatant and so obvious and so crude really 
Right. And again, for the Chinese Communist Party, right, we're not talking about the elephant in the room. Is that for the Chinese Communist Party, all they need is a crude distraction. You know, yeah. they don't need to find the origin of the coronavirus. They just make, need to make sure that we don't find it because they're worried about the liability, the lawsuits, every three million deaths, no statute of limitations. Every coffin comes with a lawyer. OK, so they're thinking ahead and they, they yeah. but the 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 bottom is it, about, line, is it about lawsuits or is it about is it about public perception? Is it, is it's it, about is it all about of lawsuits? that. It's, yeah. it's about their, this 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 huge industry, two hundred million dollars set to be expanded to one point two billion dollars of scientific collaboration with China on collecting wow. viruses from the wild, digging yeah. up the worst ones, bringing them back to the labs and playing around with them to see what's what. Now, that the allegation is that the, what the Chinese government did was they took that collaboration and then they created another side of the lab. That's what the Trump administration yeah. said. That's what the Biden administration said. So people focus on Fauci and Peter Daszak and these guys who were collaborators with the lab. I, I don't I don't think the most likely scenario is that they sponsored the research that funded the pandemic. I think the most likely scenario is they sponsored, they were collaborating with these very nice Chinese scientists. And then on the other side of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, there was a military project that, or yeah. a civilian project that got out of control. Which, by the way, which is exactly is- what the Biden administration confirmed in that January. In other words, this is not even a Trump administration theory. This is something that the Biden State Department has gone on the record to say that they believe is possible because they said there were sick researchers at the lab. They were doing hidden animal research at the lab, including with the Chinese military. So that's uh, to me, that's evidence. Now, in a court of law there, you know, there's not there. There's we have a, different standards. We have beyond a reasonable doubt. We have circumstantial cases. You know, if you just think about it that way, the Yes, it might be impossible to find that smoking gun. In other words, that whistleblower who says, yeah. I was there when the bat bit the intern and we covered it up. That person right. might not emerge. But at yeah. some point, we have to take a look at this pile of circumstantial evidence and say, OK, well, this is enough to warrant further investigation. And then we have to right. say, if that investigation can happen in China, although we need to apply our diplomatic pressure and not trust the WHO, and we have to lead right. as Americans on, the pre- on pressing the Chinese government to be more open and give us the the research. Why is the Wuhan Institute of Virology database, virus database, offline? They took it offline in December 2019. They said they were mm-hmm. being hacked. But, you know, we didn't know about the coronavirus in 20, mm-hmm. December 2019. So anyway, the point is we have to press the Chinese, continue to press the Chinese, but start the investigation okay. back at home. And the first thing that can happen is that we can release all of the intelligence that the State Department is sitting on about what was going on in those labs. And I, again, I'm reporting this to you and your audience because they were nice enough to come to our book event today then I'm going to give them some insider stuff, right? I saved some right. stuff for your event so that I people who it. turned in can think, oh, wait, I'm really glad I did this because I learned something that nobody else knows, okay? And All you right. can read about it if you want because this is on the record, is that they are engaged in a fierce debate inside the administration over whether or not to release that intelligence. Yeah. And when you saw Avril Haynes talk about this in her testimony, she said, we're considering two theories, the lab accident theory and the natural origin theory. Not the popsicle theory, not the Chinese Communist Party theory that it came in on a box a cardboard box from from us right from from fort detrick or any of that other nonsense right Right. any of that propaganda two theories natural spillover and lab accident that means they're looking into the lab accident theory they haven't figured it out yet but uh, in other words this can't just be an ic investigation we need congressional investigation we need oversight of the nih and the niaid we can't trust the best friends of the lab to tell us what they know about the lab because it's been a year because they messed it up already yeah so, but Josh, let's say, let's say the, the, the U.S. government says, yep, we're in, we're going to do the investigation for real, we're going to have money behind it, we're going to have Congress to get involved, everyone's going to look at this. 
is it possible to figure this out? I mean, the Chinese have got to cooperate. Do, can we put pressure on? I mean, are is there any chance that's yeah, going mean, to happen? Is that realistic? I mean, it, it look, look, is this on the agenda of the U.S.-China relationship, right? If you think about how complex the U.S.-China relationship is and what yeah. they're really talking about, oh, well, we have a climate change agenda. That's important. Uh, yeah. You know, we need an Iran deal. We need to talk with China about that. That's important. We have to figure out what to do with the tariffs and the sanctions. And there's a genocide going on, by the way. That's kind of important, right? Uh, wait, there's an Olympics. Okay, well, there, should we have phase two trade talks? These are all very complicated things, okay? Should we have an alliance of democracy that pushes back against Chinese encroachment into our international institutions? These are the, now, in that complex, very difficult, very contentious set of issues, drop in hey, we want to find out if you caused the uh, pandemic that made the world sick. Now, what I would say is that actually the, the, if the lab accident theory does prove to be true, and again, we're not saying that it is, we're just saying that it needs to be checked out. But if it does prove to be true, it indicts us as much as them because, of course, we built that industry in China and failed to oversee it in the way that we should have, if that turns out to be the case. Nevertheless, we, if we don't add this to the U.S.-China agenda, then we can't expect any results. And if we don't try, then we can't succeed. Yeah. And even if we can't find one more thing out from the Chinese government, there's a lot we can find out inside of our yeah. own borders, inside of our own organizations. And again, the State Department is sitting on a pile of intelligence about the Wuhan lab. There's not a lot. There's a bunch, though. It's not as much as we should yeah. have. What about the intelligence failure? How come we have a $80 billion pointed at the jihadis and $0 yeah. pointed at the Wuhan labs? Doesn't that seem like something? In other words, this is so important for so many reasons. Uh, but the most important reason is because... Uh, you know, do you want to do this every year? Do you want to have this go on every year? And if we don't find out one way or the other how this started, then that we're, we're very stupidly plundering ourselves into yeah. uh, another pandemic event, which will surely come. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about other stuff that's going on here in the United States. We've heard a lot of talk, maybe not enough talk, about this thing called the United Front Work Department, the United sure. Front, right? Uh, we've heard about Confucius Institutes, uh, you know, these these uh, organizations set up at, at American University. We've heard about the Thousand Talents Program and the arrest of a Harvard professor and all these things. What, what is going on? What is China trying to do here in the United States? And what impact, if any, does all that stuff they're doing in these universities over here? Um, and, yeah. and, and in terms of uh, this, what does that have to do with, with the fact that the NBA you know, is cramming down on individuals inside the organization and individual, uh, you know, teams when they speak out about Hong Kong or the like. Or is there a relationship between these things? And if yes. so, what's the relationship and what, how should we be thinking about it as Americans? Great question. So, you know, Chinese influence operations inside the United States is a difficult topic to talk about because it's designed to be a difficult topic to talk about. In other words, it took years for, for us in Washington and the American people in general to sort of come to some understanding of the Russian influence operations inside of our country, right? It kind of shocked us in 2016 when they, yeah. we realized how expansive it was. Now, the, the, I, the things that the Russian uh, intelligence services were doing, you know, bot armies and uh, propaganda and Facebook groups and, you know, using polling to target to sow divisions inside of our society. The Chinese government is now doing all of those things as well. You know, so that's one thing. They're doing yeah. it. I don't, I don't know if it's better or worse, but they're doing a lot. A, a quality, quantity has a quality of its own. Yeah. But that's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about a broad, multi-decade campaign to seed our institutions and corrupt our elites on both sides of the aisle, both all parts of our political spectrum, using billions of dollars in an organized, comprehensive fashion 
that's organized on the Beijing side by what you said was the United Front Work Department, which really is just a, an administrative bureau that lords over a United Front system. And what yeah. is United Josh, Front? Yeah. Oh, real quick, this sounds conspiracy theorist, right? I mean, people who are listening are saying, wait a minute, you're telling me the Chinese government spent billions of dollars to come into the U.S., plant people here, get their money in people's right. hands, and, and fundamentally shape the way we think about them that's and about right. ourselves and about our that's region. Right. That really is it made that is it made that coordinated? Really, is that really the case? Well, you know, the thing my, my friends in the intelligence community always tell me the same thing. They say the Chinese have a, a foolproof encryption system. They put things in their own language, right? And then we never figure that out, right? If all you had to do, and I, by the way, I don't speak Chinese, but I hired two uh, ch- amazing Chinese researchers, Alex Jost of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Hannah Mahon Davis of Yale University, and. Uh, what they did was they compiled the evidence to support that claim. And, you know, this is part of a growing body of work on the United Front, the way it works. And of course, the United Front dates back to Maoist times. And Mao uh, con- considered it one of the key we- uh, weapons that the kind of Chinese Communist Party had in its original struggles. And he described it as uh, using the party's friends to strike at the party's enemies. In other words, the United Front system uh, doesn't just apply to us foreigners. It applies to any of the party's interactions with people who are not in the party. So that means Uyghur Muslims and mm-hmm. overseas Chinese in California and foreigners like you and me. And mm-hmm. it's not just in America, it's all over the world. And okay. you know what, what's important to understand, the most important thing to understand is that it exists in a gray area between the soft power things we all do, propaganda and state media, and the right. covert things that we all do like spying and stealing. So if you have soft power, state media, troll bots and all of that nonsense, that's yes, we everybody does that. We do that, they do that. And then you have the secret stuff, the spying and the stealing. We do that, they do that. In between in the spray area is what you know is what influence operations are. And in other words, yeah. they're, they're overt actions that conceal a covert purpose. They're meant to yeah. influence our discussion without saying as much. So an example and they're done through proxies, a network of hundreds maybe thousands of organizations and human beings who launder the money hand over fist year after year into institutions of all kinds. And, you know, when uh, American university gets a $200 million uh, endowment from a CCP linked billionaire, might be a Hong Kong, Taiwanese, but Thai billionaire, Malaysian billionaire, whoever it is, somebody who has an interest in doing business with the CCP. Uh, that is a corrupting donation. That is, if, if you don't recognize that, then you don't understand conflicts of interest and corruption and that school has now been but say more about why but say more about why exactly because i think a lot of people say well you know it creates it creates uh incentives inside people's minds inside people's wallets for self-censorship and and going along with the people that they're depending on for their careers i mean it's the basic i mean definition of a conflict of interest it's the basic definition of of self-censorship and we see this all the time i mean when's the last time you saw a pro-Tibet movie in Hollywood. It's been about 20 years, you know, 20 years, 20 years. Okay. And this happens in wall street all the time. That's why you have the powers that be, you know, put like Steve Mnuchin and Larry Fink and Steven Schwarzman pushing back against sanctions and, you know, pushing back against national security considerations of Chinese investment because it's in their direct financial interest because they're getting paid on both ends. Okay. And that's, that's, that's about as simple of a corruption as I can imagine in my mind. And then when you talk about the, Academic institutions, well, then it gets a bit more complicated because part of what the United Front, uh, what makes the United Front so uh, pernicious is that it forces Americans to sort of uh, choose between competing interests, right? You have schools that value cooperation and and exchanges with China. And we have to understand that those are very valuable. We have to keep our connections with the Chinese people who are not 
the same thing as the Chinese government. And it's very hard to keep those exchanges without succumbing to the Chinese Communist Party's edicts and doctrines. But, you know, at the same time, there is a national security threat when you realize that these academic programs have been weaponized on the Chinese side to put in everything from spies to military theft to, you know, to just basic self-censorship and influence. And, you know, it's complicated and well-meaning people can disagree on how uh, pernicious and how how deep-seated the threat is. Uh, And that discussion is a very hard discussion to have especially with the Chinese propaganda that's added onto it. But the bottom line is that we see that more and more uh, transparency and sunlight is being put onto these relationships, especially these funding relationships. And I think that's what we need. I think we need to not target Chinese or Chinese Americans. We have to preserve our exchanges with the Chinese people. At the same time, we have to realize that uh, when the CCP tries to export its uh, ideology and impose it on our society, then that's a red line. And that's the NBA example. That's what I'm taking you to right now. Yeah. I was about to ask. So when the NBA, you know, and, and this idea of, like you said, it sounds crazy. It sounds a little conspiratorial, but everybody knows what happened with the NBA. Every American knows. OK, one tweet. Daryl Morey had one tweet stand with Hong Kong and they punished the NBA to the tune of four hundred million dollars, which is not an insignificant amount of money. Biggest sports scandal in history. All right. So what does that tell you? It tells you that the Chinese and by the way, Chinese people love the NBA and. You know, the NBA has a big business in China, and that should be a non-controversial set of relationships. The fact that the Chinese Communist Party weaponized their politics to punish the NBA shows that they're putting the ideology and the politics above business. It shows what they really care about. It also shows that they're exporting what we call their social credit system. Now, if you're in China and you post something, stand with Hong Kong on WeChat or whatever, your social credit score gets dinged. You can't get a good job. You can't get on a a fast train or whatever. Uh, That's terrible. That's a form right. of repression. That's Orwellian at its core, right? We should speak against that. Right. But, but we don't. That's, well, I, right. But that's, that's or, one thing. Yeah. But what's yeah. worse is when they try to enforce it on us. Now, right. I can't tweet about Hong Kong or they're going to punish my organization or my entire industry. Right. That's an exportion of their repression, exportation of their repression on our soil. And, yes. you know, the NBA is not a foreign policy organization. They didn't know what to do. They couldn't stand up to it. They didn't. They're not powerful enough. Well, and that's but worse. They didn't. They did not stand up to it. They actually went the other direction. They put pressure on their teams and on their on their did. leaders. I mean, that's they, that's the crazy thing about it. They went Adam the Silver made direction. They made a huge mistake, which they are only yeah. starting to realize. Which is that you know, if you stand up for human rights, then you stand up for human rights everywhere, especially amongst your own people. And if you're for right. free speech for Black Lives Matter or for NS Cantor, who's the Celtic Center, whose family was tortured by Erdogan then you have to stand up for the Uyghurs and the Hong Kongers and the Taiwanese and the Tibetans and the Rohingya and all other oppressed people in the world. That's how, that's where I come from. Now that's only because I don't have a financial interest in siding with any oppressors. Right. And the, whereas the NBA does. Okay. So that's why they can't be, uh, we, yes, we should encourage them to do the right thing. But the problem with our system, I think is that there's no positive incentives. It's all finger wagging. And where was the U S government to say, Hey, Hey, NBA, uh, you're not powerful enough to deal with the Chinese Communist Party. We're going to help you out. And we're going to use our diplomatic tools in order to push back against American companies and industries that are getting punished by the CCP for tweets. You know, right. so I, I, I just think that our China discussion is not sophisticated enough to get to that level. But I've, yeah. I've said that's where we need to go. We need to uh, realize that if the CCP is uh, a pit against individual American companies, they're always going to have right. to fall. Uh, right. But this is really a political issue and should be dealt with on a diplomatic level. Yeah. 
So, Josh, I, 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 we could have this conversation for yeah. two hours. As you know, I've got another gazillion questions. But I, I did say yeah. that I would – well, I, I did say that I would go <laughs> to the audience for questions. So, so I got to do it. Um, uh, so we'll just start right at the top uh, from Jay Murdoch. Jay asked – he says, yesterday um, uh, you, will, you suggested the White House has some appetite to get uh, COVID orders. You said it again today, right? Um, yeah. He mentions uh, David Asher in a recent interview with Sherry Markson talked about a possible presence of adenovirus in one of the first outbreaks at a PLA hospital. What's it going to take for more declassification to happen in this space? You said you told us now yeah. they're actively considering it. Yeah. You How guys close who, is that to happening? Yeah. You guys who are smart enough to have joined this, uh, uh, po- this event right now are finding out the latest and the greatest of the information. Okay. And the latest and the greatest of the information is that uh, – the the political ins- the Biden administration is is there's two things going on there's an IC investigation into both theories right which is proceeding apace but it's come to no conclusion right and that's when yeah. when, when you see people say oh well, the IC says there's no evidence of a lab accident that's year old it, wrong information the bottom line is that they're okay. looking at both but there's a gap yeah. there's a gap in the intelligence they can't prove it either way now separate and apart from that there's a political discussion going on at the State Department and is see about what you know what is the circumstantial evidence and what can we say and what do we think and what does that mean we need to do now the political the that's a the 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 national security discussion the political discussion is what does this mean for the biden administration and if you think about it their incentives are the political incentives are not to do anything because progressive democrats have gone Hmm. way out on a limb to attack the lab accident theory as some sort of racist conspiracy theory, because that was the thing to do at the time. Even when Robert Redfield, who's the head of the CDC and a virologist, said that he looked, took a look at this virus and it was so powerful and so unique that it must have come from evolution inside of a lab setting. You know, he was criticized by the progressive Democrats who are committed to this idea that the lab accident theory is uh, somehow a crazy theory. Now, I'm telling you that I understand why how they got there and I don't yeah. blame them for following that narrative and a lot of people in the media too, but it, it's okay for them to take the new information, including a lot of the new right. evidence that's and coming adapt. out and adapt and change your mind. Yeah. It's okay to change your yeah. mind. It's okay to admit you were wrong. If it comes out that the natural spillover theory is the true theory. If Peter Daszak finds that one pangolin, the smoking gun pangolin, which he's been looking right. for for a year and a half, they haven't found right. one, pang- not right. one pangolin, zero pangolins that they right. can, they, that's all the, all the, the searching of all the pangolins. There's no pangolins. If they find that right. pangolin, I'll eat my hat. I'll, I will happily, you know, admit that I was, uh, you know, that I, that I, that the natural spillover theory was the true theory. That's fine. I don't care actually how it yeah. comes out, but the progressive Democrats have a, a pl- huge political downside in admitting that this right. might be true because of all. the all right. reasons. Now right. the Biden people, what's their upside for proving it? Well, nothing really except the national security value of saving the country and the world from the next pandemic. Well, right, that, that one, right. That, that one. one. That's what I've been telling. That little thing. That little right, thing. right. So now all the now it's getting the Republicans are coming out, Kathy McMorris Rogers and Mike Gallagher and uh, Senator Marshall and, you know, a bunch of others to say that, like, OK, well, let's have a select committee or some sort of investigation into the origins. And there's no Democrats, really. OK, so I think what would need to happen to answer your question directly is that you need to have some Democrats step up to the plate to say that we need to take the politics out of the COVID origin question and just get to the bottom of this. And that includes asking, investigating the lab theory and includes asking some tough questions. With people like but what about, Peter Fauci, what about like the, even though, yeah, you know, what about the Alyssa Slotkins, nice you know? Yeah. What about the Alyssa Slotkins, the Abigail? Scott they're all, I mean, they're, they're all, they're, yeah, they're all in tough positions. They're all, you know, I, I'm looking towards a, a guy named Bob Menendez who testified, yeah. you know, who, who held a hearing and said that this is an urgent national security move and if you look at the strategic competition act to get a little wonky this is a yeah. wonky audience that's the 
SFRC's bipartisan China bill that includes yep. a provision requiring a report for the State Department to, to hand over everything it knows about these Wuhan labs and the origin within 180 days. So if you think about that, it's like, okay, Menendez and Rich both support getting to the bottom of this. And Menendez has said we need to get to the bottom of this. And their answer is, if this bill passes as part of the Endless Frontiers Act sometime next month, and the State Department would have 180 days from the signing of the bill to issue the report. So we're already looking at like December or January 2022 before we get the report on what they already knew a year ago. And, and we and, know how that goes. Yeah, we know how that report. And then the report's going to be late. And I, and I and I I I don't know. Am I crazy that like maybe we should figure it out before then? Before we spend another one point two billion dollars on collecting viruses in the wild, which is what's proposed in the Global Virome Project. In other words, if this risky research caused the pandemic, maybe we shouldn't expand it sixfold. Maybe we should think about that. You know, do you want to do this every year? Are you enjoying this pandemic crisis? I'm Although not. The flip side. I'm right, lucky. I, I'm not even sick. I'm I'm not yeah. enjoying it. I mean, the argument, though, right, on the other side of this is part of this collection of these viruses is we understand them better. We're more able to be prepared when the next thing hits. We can we can sequence yeah. it fast. Right. Part of the reason we got the we got the vaccine so sure. quickly was, you know, that's, we had that's not why we got the vaccine. So, yes, no, the, it's, right. it's not the, exactly right. Is it? It's not, the predict and preempt program for 200 million dollars, which is based on the idea that we should collect viruses from the wild and play around with them. Uh, didn't predict, didn't preempt the pandemic may have we don't know but may have sparked the pandemic right and and what they're going to sextuple down on that idea and where did the where did the vaccines come from from the darpa program from the mrna program the the ip of which the biden administration wants to now hand over to india and china for some crazy reason you know what i mean because that's a whole separate issue but as it turns out that the all the mrna program had nothing to do with the predict program and they didn't produce the therapeutics and they didn't produce the vaccines and all they did was collect a lot of bunch of dangerous viruses and then work with a bunch of chinese labs and it may or may have not but may have you know caused the mess that we're in the point is we should get to the bottom of it i you know it's like uh I get attacked sometimes. It's like, oh, you're pushing the lab. I'm not pushing the lab theory. I don't care if the lab theory is true. I'm pushing for an investigation of all the possible theories, including the lab theory. Full stop. And when that person comes to you and says, we shouldn't investigate one of the possible theories, that's the person yeah. you have to suspect. That's the person who's bullshitting you. Yeah. Because it doesn't make any sense. And, you know, and there's no urgency because the politics of our country and uh, Washington, as you know, Jamil, are so screwed up right now. Right. How long yeah. have you been in Washington, Jamil? How long? It's at. Uh- 15 years 15 i've been 24 years okay yeah 20 yeah 1997 i've never seen it as broken as it is now this is broken right can you imagine if there had been i mean the idea that we had an insurrection at the capitol i mean it's it's unbelievable outrageous crazy right and you know just think of you know 9-11 tragically what five thousand six thousand people died there was a 9-11 commission you know the church commission the warren commission the the Mueller investigation we had a hearing today I watched it on my TV right here in my basement about the January 6th insurrection. That's five people died. That's a tragedy. This is 580,000 Americans and counting three million people worldwide and counting seven billion people suffering. And when the Australians tried to initiate an independent investigation, the Chinese government uh, uh, destroyed their beef and wine industries in the middle of a crisis punitively for their ideological and political agenda. And so none of the all of these other countries want to find this out, too, but they can't do it. The WHO can't do it. If we don't do it, no one's going to do it. It's a it's the burden of leadership. It's the burden of being yeah. the well, United States of America. And I mean, it's not clear that we want to lead. That's half the problem, right? It's not clear. Well, the Biden administration said America's back. Are we back? We'll is find it? Out. 
Is it America yeah. back? Well, it, we're not back if we don't uh, do the most important thing, which is to figure out how we got into this dystopian yeah. nightmare that we're all living in. Yeah. All right. So Brian Smith, uh, one of our one of our fellows at NSI, asks, uh, "Why do you think China hasn't retaliated at least yet? Uh, at least at least not clearly against the U.S. for the actions we've taken against Huawei? Is that is that surprising? What's going on there?" You know, there is an extensive uh, counter Huawei, uh, Huawei campaign going on. I don't know if it's like there. It, it includes retaliation. There is a lot of retaliation. Yeah. Think about this for a second. You know, one of the first thing the, the day I remember the inauguration day. You know, most times inauguration day, I'm on the roof of the Canadian embassy getting drunk off of bloody Caesars. You know, that's my tradition. I don't know about you, right. but, you, you know, they got a great party. They got like the, the moon claws and the whole thing. I've been doing it for a long time. Now, of course, this year we couldn't do that. So I'm, right. you know, watching it on TV in my basement with my wife. And, you know, what the first thing the Chinese government did before they even acknowledged the, uh, the Biden won the election was they sanctioned all the Trump officials who did the Huawei sanctions. Not just the Huawei right. sanctions, lots of other sanctions. 24 U.S. government officials sanctioned Keith Kroc and Robert O'Brien, Matt Hottinger, all of them. OK, now they did that for a lot of other countries as well. All the other yeah. countries wrapped their arms around those people and said, no, we won't stand for this. The Biden administration yeah. has never said boo about it. They never said that, hey, China, we're, there's some consequence for sanctioning 24 American officials. So this, it's not true to say that there's no retaliation. There's also a huge okay. propaganda campaign. There's also a huge okay. uh, counter uh, programming campaign. And then there's a they have their own supply chain policies and onshoring yeah. policies that are meant to right. uh, build a Huawei infrastructure that's no longer yeah. dependent on our semiconductors and our good graces, right. et cetera. Now, right. uh, so that's, they're doing a lot of things to counter our Huawei. The problem with our Huawei campaign is not that it's succeeding so well because they haven't done, responded to it. The problem with it is that we're not offering any of these uh, third countries a, a viable alternative that we haven't worked with. Because there aren't really any. Right. There are. There's Nokia. There's Nokia. There's Samsung. There's Ericsson. There's, you know, if we're we're not working effectively with them to get that to make that. Exactly. Exactly. We went around the the world wagging our fingers at countries, telling them not to do Huawei. And of course, it's not just Huawei. It's the package of corruption and business and diplomatic favors that comes with the Huawei at 30 30 cents on the dollar. Right. It's a it's a dictator happy meal. Okay, (laughs) that's what it is. Okay, they come to you like you get the 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 diplomatic protection, the bags of cash, right. the one right. belt, one road project, the free right. stadium, the, the road that parliament building. Right. Stadium. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I've been to these countries. I went to the Papua right. New Guinea. They have it's a beautiful road that when they yeah. put the, the plane on the road, the, the road like sinks into the thing. You know what I mean? It's not the best road, but it's not the point. Okay? It looks good. It looks great. And, and everyone's pockets got lined all right. along the way. And I will even praise uh, Keith Crotch for going around and praising this and preaching this idea of like clean networks and people would rather have, you know, networks with less spying and less encroachment and less, yeah. but that's not the same thing as actually having a counter offer. So I think yeah. that, you know, the fight against Huawei is not going as well as it could because of us, not because of them. Yeah. So Matthew Ferraro asked, uh, he says, uh, you know, great talk. Um, how do you analyze the, the Trump suspicions, uh, uh, the snooze against Trump, that is, uh, about China, right? Yeah, this idea about, you know, favors granted yeah. uh, to Ivanka and yeah, uh, funding for Kusher property, Kusher properties, yeah. right? And, and 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 Matt is sort of says, look, Trump talked a good game on on China about being hawkish on China, but given the evidence, it was just another thing that the president was willing to trade away uh, for a dollar. And and he doesn't he doesn't point to this, but you right. mentioned it earlier, the sort of right. the ZTE, you know, sort of pivot on a dime. Right. Um, talk to us about that. Is is there any truth to that? How do you how do you think about those yeah. issues? No, I mean, you know, so as I'm writing this book and I'm going back and doing 400 additional interviews and 
you know, talking to all these people over again yeah. and trying to retrace all the steps of my reporting. I reported the story out twice, once as it was happening and then once in quarantine in my basement, you know, with a book deadline. OK, and and I one of the things I spent a lot of time on was trying to figure out this question about the Trump family corruptions and what was the bottom line on it. OK, and what I found was a actually nuanced, you know, if we can talk nuanced in in uh, D.C. these days. Uh, so if we can let me let me give it a shot. OK, so it's clear that every time there was a big uh, um, uh, event in the trade negotiations, another big meeting yeah. with Leo Hu, big deadline, they would grant Ivanka a bunch of trademarks. OK, now that's there's no evidence that she that was a quid pro quo. In other words, they would bribe her for the fun of it, for the because it compromised her, whether right. or not she asked for it or not. Right. Right. And, it's still, it still looks bad. Right. It's still, it looked bad, but it also tied her to, to them in a way that they knew would be to their interest. And she didn't object. You know what I mean? To but your no, point, to your point earlier about the funding, right? You know, it's even just if corrupting. It, they corrupted all the elites that will take the money. If you'll take the money or the honeypot or whatever it is, they'll throw it at you. You know, that's why yeah. they're always throwing like these like spies at like American mayors. Like, here's like, why are they throwing? Why are they trying to get Chinese spies to sleep with American mayors? Who cares about them? Well, you know, every once in a while. These American mayors end up sleeping with the Chinese spy. Next thing you know, maybe they're a congressman. Maybe they're on the Senate Intelligence Committee. You know who I'm talking about. Okay. So all of a sudden, you, you try to get enough U.S. politicians to sleep with your spies. One of them ends up on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Okay. So, so the, 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 there's a difference between a quid pro quo, like Ivanka went to the. Now, the Jared Kushner Ong Bong thing is a little specific because. He met with the leaders yeah. of Hong Kong during the transition, tried to report by the Wall Street Journal, reported by the Wall Street Journal, tried to get them to bail him out of 666. And, you know, that's a, yeah. about as much of a conflict of interest as you can imagine. They didn't do it. And then the head of Ong Bong got an 18 year prison and said he's breaking rocks somewhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it didn't really work out either. Right. Okay? Right. And then people were like, make a lot of hay out of like, oh, Trump had a bank account for doing real estate transactions and Trump organization in Shanghai or something like that. But then, there were a lot of efforts to expand the Trump organization. They tried to expand it everywhere. That's why they were always going to Russia. But right. they, it didn't always work. It just worked sometimes. Right. They didn't really care. They were agnostic right. about it. So, yeah, they tried to do some business in China. It didn't really work out. So that's a lot of, like, you know, examples of, like, to say that there's not really a lot of Trump family corruption related to China. That's not to say they didn't try. <laughs> it just didn't, they weren't that, it just wasn't really a big feature of the, of the story, as far as I could tell. Now, compare that to you know, what Hunter Biden was doing in uh, China for five years, okay, with Devin Archer and others. And the record on that, which we can't, we're not allowed to talk about in Play Society because it was pushed by Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani and Guo and Guai, which I get into in the book. So it must be wrong. Which is yeah. a crazy story, okay? I'm not, I don't vindicate any of those people I just mentioned. You should mm-hmm. read the epilogue to the book. It's crazy, okay? But what I argue is that despite that that was done in a very crazy and horrible way, there's some there there. Okay, and and hmm. clear that both James uh, uh, Biden and Hunter Biden were trading on the family ma- name to make money in China, just p- from the things that they admit to, just from the things that are not in dispute, hmm. just from the fact that he took a million dollars to represent Patrick Ho, who was then convicted of uh, corruption, just from the fact that he took a two point eight carat diamond from the head of the CE, the Chinese <laughs> energy company, and he's like, "Why is he giving me a diamond?" You know, I don't. know. That was weird. Yeah. Remember that time he gave me the diamond? Like it's crazy. And then that guy got it disappeared. Okay. Look for the chairman of the CEFC. He doesn't, you can't find him. Okay. So, and then when you add the Hunter Biden laptop story, which is a complicated story, but it, again, really screwed up by Bannon and Rudy, but not completely devoid of information. 
right? There's a lot of information mm-hmm. there that we ignored because we didn't want to get suckered into another Ben and Rudy, you know, trick or whatever right. in the lead up to the election. That seems to be a lot more business with the Chinese than the Trumps ever had. If, you, if we're being honest, if we can be honest, mm. if we're allowed to be honest, the fact is that Hunter Biden and James Biden had a lot more business in China than Trump and Jared and Trump ever had times 10. But this is another victim of our politics because it's an impossible yeah. thing to talk about. This is a very complicated yeah. thing to talk about. Yeah. I'm not alleging a, any crimes. Yeah. I'm not alleging that Hunter Biden did anything illegal. I'm just saying that he, he admitted to several relationships, which paint a much more you know, clear picture of his, his business in China than we could ever paint to Ivanka Trump. Not to say that she yeah. was clean on the issue either. Yeah. Which is, it is point, amazing. Which yeah. they, they, they go after both sides. Neil Bush, there's a good story in the book about Neil Bush. <laughs> you know, he's doing business in China. He, he, you know, he's taking money from a Chinese Communist Party uh, United Front Front organization for the Bush Center. And they're funded by KUSEF, which is funded by Tung Jiwa, who's like a vice chairman of one of the top United Front organizations. It's just a clear line from the CCP United Front Organization right to the George H.W. Bush Foundation. Clear as day, documented. Not, they're not even, they don't even really deny it. And, you know, that's, that's, that's how it works. They corrupt elites on both sides because uh, yeah. they never know who's going to be in power because we never know who's going to be in power. Yeah, yeah. So, Josh, we only have a few minutes left. I'll ask one last question uh, on a slightly different topic. Um, uh, one of our guests asks, uh, points out that the Wall Street Journal reported today uh, the Trump administration's tariffs led to sharp decline in Chinese imports, a significant shift in types of goods Americans buy from China. Um, what do you expect to happen in the Biden administration in a minute or two, since we only have a couple minutes left? Gotcha. Okay, I'll get through this one quick because I, I want to get yeah. through a few, a few more. And if we go a couple of minutes over, that's okay yeah. with me. Uh, yeah. My information is that, you know, uh, first of all, because of the pandemic, a lot of the phase one trade deal things took a lot, lot longer to play out. But I talked to Senator uh, Roger Marshall. He said that the soybean sales and all the farm stuff really did happen. They, they stuck to the terms of the trade one deal as much as could be reasonably accept, uh, expected during this crazy crisis. But again, that's sort of a distraction from the real big important issues that are going on in the relationship. The tariffs are still there. Yeah. Big tariffs on, on the high technology stuff, on the made in China 2025 stuff, on the industries. Right. That's the bleeding edge. The capital markets, the tariffs, that's where it is. And there's a fight going on inside the Biden administration right now as to whether or not to keep those tariffs between on one side, the national security people on the other side, the treasury people. And that's the same exact dynamic that played out in the last administration because of the same factions, because the the same interests, because they have the same Wall Street paymaster. So I think that fight is going on right now. I'm really I'm watching that one closely. I think everyone should. Do you think it comes out differently, given that um, I don't know, you would just assume in the Biden administration, the, the, the quote unquote Wall Street paymasters have less influence? I don't know. I don't, not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them are Democrats. Steve Mnuchin was a Democrat. Yeah. Gary Cohn was a Democrat. Yeah. So in yeah. a sense, Wall Street might have more influence. I don't know. It's clear to me that, that there are different camps on China inside the administration. Right now, the, the more competitive camp led by people like Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken have the ball. And yeah. Kirk Campbell, they clearly have the ball. And that's because the politics are such that the American people want a tougher China policy because they know that to some degree, and we could debate how much their suffering during the pandemic was exacerbated by the fact that the Chinese Communist Party acted terribly and probably criminally throughout this entire uh, year and that the U.S. has yet to respond to that. And so, you know, the politics favor a harsher China approach, whether you're for that or not. I happen to be for that because I think we're behind the eight ball. Uh, But that's not that's not destined to proceed. All these things are reversible. And, you know, the dangle hasn't come. And, you know, these games haven't been played. And the one thing I learned from covering the China uh, story in the Trump administration is that it goes back and forth. No, no one faction wins all the time, you know, yeah. and that's that's why you play the game. So I I, I won't uh, pretend to be able to predict what's going to yeah. happen next. 
Well, Josh, uh, look, we've got one minute left. I do want to let people go on time. And I know you'd love to stay and I'd love to stay and we could do this for hours and maybe we'll have you back. We'll talk about it some more. I do want to mention two things before we go though. One, I see your wife is on and I can't, and I know, I know <laughs> we're here to talk about your book, but I got to say, upstairs. <laughs> Allie Rogan beat breast cancer like a boss, 30 powerful stories, amazing book. You got to pick it up if you haven't. And just as importantly, you got to pick up Josh's book. Um, you know, it's, it's excellent. Um, really chaos under heaven, Trump G the battle for the 21st century. Josh, thanks for being here, man. Really appreciate it. Sorry. We couldn't get to, I mean, we have a dozen no, no, no. questions in the chat that we can get to. This is awesome. Listen, we'll have you back. Listen, Jamil, this is a conversation that every American and every citizen in the world will need to engage in because it's a conversation about what kind of world do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a world where our ideals, where the ideas of uh, freedom and free speech and democracy and human rights and the rule of law and dignity and human dignity and the freedom to love who you want and to, to, to worship who you want? Are those the values that are going to prevail? Or is that going to be the way that our, life, our lives uh, continue? Or are we going to follow a different path where, you know, autocracy and repression are, are allowed and, and perpetrate our societies? That's what's at stake here. So that means all of us need to get into this conversation. So I really appreciate you uh, providing a forum for this conversation. And this yeah. conversation is just beginning. And I look forward to engaging with all of you out there on this as we move forward. I agree 100 uh, percent. NSI has a program on this. China tw- NSI 2020 countering China's rise. Uh, we're not we're not going to take it sitting down. We agree with you 100 percent, Josh. Uh, folks, stay tuned uh, for our next Asset Nightcap next month, AI in the Fight for the Future, all about China too, May 26th from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern. Check out our website, all our law and policy papers. Find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, at Mason Natsek. Check out our podcast, Fault Lines, Iron Butterfly, talking about amazing women of the intelligence community and NSI Live. Josh, thanks for being here. Thanks, everybody. Have a great evening. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.